He was a wonderful gospel minister. <laughs> this is good now? Okay. Good. Then, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5. 17 to 25 is what we're going to be reading today. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. Once you've got it, then please stand up and we will read God's word. These are the words of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are, can, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And you may be seated, and we trust that God will bless the reading of his word. So, as we all know, we're continuing through and getting close to the end of the book of 1 Timothy, which we've been working through, and we've seen in this book many practical instructions about a, a healthy church, how a healthy church is to be constructed, what it looks like, how it's to be governed, uh, and so forth. And that's actually why we chose this book as our initial book uh, to work through in a preaching series, is because of how practical it is to our situation. Right? This is a new church plant. We have a, a chance to build things in a healthy, God-glorifying manner. And so where better could we do than get instruction from Scripture itself on how this is to look? And so this is why 1 Timothy was chosen, is because of how practical it is to this church. Well, really to all churches, but especially uh, as we start something new here. So we've seen lots of instructions about how elders and deacons are to be qualified. Who's qualified to be an elder or deacon? And also how they're to operate in the church. And now we have additional instructions that get right into church life, right into real life practical kind of governance issues. And governance may not seem like a very exciting topic, and yet again, it's here in the text, and so we confront it, we we work through it honestly, and if God thought it was important enough to put in Scripture, then it's important enough for us to draw it out of Scripture uh, and to make application. Starting in verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And we don't have to get far into this here. Just the first five words. Let the elders who rule. Hmm. Okay? So we aren't far into this before we have to take note of something important that's being said. We saw earlier in chapter 3 that overseers, bishops, elders, that's different words for the same office, are to, in fact, oversee the life of the church. And now it is talking about these men who are ruling. So elders are supposed to rule. And so now we're not thinking just about the qualifications for these men uh, in leading the church, but also what the job of leading the church actually entails and, and the whole structure of church government and how that's to operate. And it's clear one of the jobs of church elders is to rule. Right? It says that right in the text. And we live, again, in an anti 
kind of authoritarian or anti-authority age, and so we don't like to think often about ruling or authority or people being in, uh, in positions, uh, and maybe for good reason, we could say in our time, but this is something that's in the text that we have to work through. Uh, and really, no Christians would probably disagree with the fact that elders need to rule, but there's been different ways this has been handled through church history, uh, and we see it in, in the world today. Uh, and so I'll give a brief outline uh, of kind of three, the three basic big headings of how church government works around the world. Uh, so one is a system of government called prelacy. Uh, and so this is practiced by Roman Catholics and Anglicans, let's say, uh, where you have a kind of a top-down hierarchy. Right? So if you want to go into ministry, you, you go through seminary, you graduate, uh, and a church doesn't call you, the, the denomination tells you where you're going. Right? So if, if you graduate from an Anglican seminary, uh, your bishop is going to assign you somewhere. The local church is kind of taken out of it, and there's a top-down hierarchy. Or you see it in the Catholic church, where uh, the Pope says something, and, and this is speaking on behalf of the church. Right? And, and the cardinals have to do what he says, and the archbishops beneath them. Uh, and so forth. And so we're familiar probably with a kind of top-down hierarchical form of government that is still practiced by some Christians today. There's another form of church government called Presbyterianism, where churches pick their elders. The local church kind of has the final say, but then these elders communicate with each other in a certain region. So all the, you know, all the Presbyterian churches in Iowa would get together and, and they'd have a Presbytery meeting, work through stuff, and then they bring that back to their local churches. So it's, it's less hierarchical, but there's clear cooperation between different churches. Uh, and then lastly, you have a form of church government called congregationalism, which really emphasizes the independence of each local church. But not only that, but the congregation is the form of government, congregational rule. So 50% plus one is how the church is governed. And of course, as we might expect, there's strengths and weaknesses with all different models of church governance. And this is also an important point, uh, important place to point out that church culture is irreplaceable. It absolutely has to work uh, in and through this. If we just focus on government without focusing on culture, we are going to leave ourselves very vulnerable. Because, and we've stressed this a lot, and I, I, and I don't think we can stress it too much, positive things are happening in the culture of this church. I can feel it, I, I, I sense it in our conversations. Uh, and that is something, that is a work that we all have to remain committed to, is a healthy, uh, cooperative spirit and a cooperative church culture. Because any form of church government can work reasonably well if people are cooperative. If there's a good culture in the church, almost any of these three systems can work. And if there's a bad culture, none of them work. Okay? If there's a bad culture, if there's a bad spirit in the room, you can't undo that with rules or with a structure. We need both. We need a healthy biblical way to structure the church, but then in and under and through that we need people who actually love each other. Okay? People who actually want to be in fellowship, people who are pulling in the same direction. And that's why we've been emphasizing culture so much because you cannot replace it. Okay? You you can't do this with the constitution or with governance as important as those things are. We have to be committed to loving each other and to being accountable to each other and building something healthy here. But, like I say, all three of these uh, systems have strengths and weaknesses. So in the, in the prelacy system of Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, you can guard your church doctrine very, very close. As long as the Pope is holding fast, the church is going to stay together. But if he falls, 
things start to spin out of control very, very fast. And for those who enjoy following the Roman Catholic Church, if I was a Roman Catholic, I would probably be a conservative Roman Catholic, uh, and I would have very much liked Pope John Paul II, and I would have liked Benedict. Uh, I would be very discouraged by a pope now who seems to not be very fixed on Catholic doctrine. And so even that old joke, you know, when, when, when an answer is obviously yes, people used to say, well, is the pope Catholic? That's actually debatable right now <laughs> if the current pope is Catholic, but we'll, we'll leave that there. Um, in Presbyterian style of church government, things move very, very slow because decisions can't be made until a group of churches and the elders from different churches meet together, make a decision, and then come back to their churches. So it moves very slow and inefficiently. The plus side is there's lots of checks and balances. And then in congregational forms of government, uh, the positive is there's grassroots buy-in. The church makes a decision, and so it's the church's decision uh, so there can be buy-in. The downside is every decision is potentially a divisive one because it's always put into the hands of 50% plus one. And many of you, if you've been involved in church government stuff, how many times at a congregational meeting uh, someone all of a sudden over the course of three or maybe even four minutes comes to a very firm conclusion about what the right answer is, right? Uh, I've literally thought about this for 38 seconds already. My mind is made up and, and here we go. And so there, that's a... A weakness there, uh, the plus side is there can be buy-in if the congregation is together. Okay, so again, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses with the way the church has handled all of these in the past. But some elements of good governance, however this looks in the local church, are clear in the text. Elders need to be the ones who rule. Elders need to lead. And it's, it's clear in 1 Timothy 5, 17. And there's an interesting text from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 18, if you want to turn there, that might not seem like this fits here right away, but let's read through it and we're going to put this all together here and see what this should look like. So if you go to Matthew 15, pardon me, Matthew 18, I'll give you a minute, um, and we're going to start at 15 and read through to the end of 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hold that in the back of your mind, two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So a couple things here. One step, and this is dealing with discipline or with sin, one step is you notice how the minimum amount of pressure is being applied at each step. You only move on if there's resistance. You only move on if there's not repentance. But minimum force is, uh, is taken at each step. So we don't have a picture of heavy-handed, top-down kind of authoritarianism emerging in this text. We also see that there is real authority. That God is pleased uh, to, to bind on earth what the church has bound and to loose on earth what the church has loosed. Okay, so the church does have real authority, actual authority that God divests into the church. So there is real authority that is there. 
But what I really want to look at here is what happens, what does this look like when this matter needs to get taken to the church? It's spoken here then in terms of two or three. If two or three are gathered, uh, fits in the context of taking a discipline matter to the church or a thorny issue goes to the church and then it quickly shifts to where two or three are gathered in my name. Seemingly, it's not the whole congregation that hears the whole juicy gossip. It's two or three. It's the representatives of the church. It's the elders of the church. That's what it means to take something to the church, is to take it to the elders. That's the two or three language. And how many people have probably, well, always, but especially in the last couple of years, heard verse 20 being abused, right? Well, where two or three are gathered, that's the church, Right? So Howard calls me up and he wants to go golfing on Sunday morning and he reminds me, Matt, it's better to be on the golf course thinking about church than a church thinking about golf. Yeah, that sounds right. And we're both Christians. So So, yeah, let's go golfing. We don't have to be in church. After all, me and Howard on the eighth tee box are the church, right? Two or three are gathered in my name. That's not at all what's being taught here. That's not what's being taught here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, God is working through that, that is the church in terms of that is the leaders of the church. That's the elders. That's what it means to take a matter to the church is to take it to the two or three, not to the two or three hundred for gossip to spread. So let's keep in mind when you hear that verse being used as an excuse for people to get out of church or, you know, I, well, I, I, I do best church when I'm fishing, actually. Uh, that's not what is being taught here whatsoever. The, the gathering of the church is essential Okay, uh, And so keep in mind when someone uses that verse that it is clearly in the context of the church needing to work through a thorny issue uh, and in Jesus' own case uh, that he's using there of church discipline. That's the two or three language. Some other things that are important to pull out of all of scripture is that all elders are equal. Okay, There's not tiers of elders. There's not like a bishop is higher than an elder. Uh, and we, we, we looked at that earlier on in this book that these words, episkopos, we, we use the word episcopalian, or presbyteros, turns to, to presbyter, bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, minister, it's all the same word. It's the same office. So there's not tiers of who ranks higher or lower. They're all on an equal footing. There's one office here of elder, whether you call him a bishop or a minister or whatever, uh, these guys are on parity. We also see that there should be a plurality of elders. It talks always in the plural, and we get that also from Acts 14.23 and from uh, Titus 1.5, that it's clearly there's a plurality uh, that is governing a church. It's not just one guy kind of as a corporate CEO type. It, it is a body. It's a plurality. And this fits with the wisdom we have in the Proverbs, right? What do we read in Proverbs 11.14, where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. There's always wisdom in pooling a discussion. Maybe one guy misses something and another guy sees it. Maybe someone's not thinking about this angle, somebody else sees it. So there is wisdom in pooling uh, resources, in pooling people's minds, of discussing things out in the open so that you think of all the possible aspects and you will soon find out as I have many times, I'm still a man, and many things do get forgotten, but uh, there's a safety net if there's multiple people uh, that can work together. So again, going back to these different ways that this is practiced through history, 
the, the prelate system or the hierarchy system does get this right uh, in that it affirms that leaders do need to lead. However, it easily becomes authoritarian and top-down. Congregationalism gets it right that local churches need to be independent and make their own decisions, but congregationalism doesn't actually allow leaders to lead as a general rule. And Presbyterian-style government tends to strike a, a balance, but it needs cooperative churches to work with, or else that system also fails. And so here at Trinity, what we want to do is to recognize the biblical ideals and limits, which means we are led by a plurality of elders who are all on parity with each other. Uh, and we see the local church and not a denomination or not machinery of a denomination or an organization as having the final say. The final say belongs in the local church. And while we are not part of a formal denomination at this time, we are intentionally trying to network with other like-minded churches across this province of which there are uh, an encouraging number. Uh, and that is a growing number, seemingly. So we can access the wisdom from other churches as well. So what we end up having here is some kind of an informal kind of hybrid between Presbyterianism uh, and, and independence, kind of congregationalism in the sense that it's this church is independent, yet we don't want to just cut ourselves off from the rest of the church world. Um, so we're trying to, to fit something here in our situation that honors all of these principles. Then it says that these men need to be considered worthy of double honor. So in many cases, being an elder is a full-time vocation. It's a calling, uh, and that's, that's what you do for a living then. And that is a legitimate career path. And so those who quit their regular vocations to dedicate themselves full-time to the service of the church here are said to be worthy of a double honor. And this doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be paid double of what everyone else in the church is making, but it does show that their work is honorable, it's legitimate, uh, it's a genuine calling. And this is less awkward for me to preach on this text because I still am making my living from farming. So it's not... a uh, too awkward, but, but the, the recognition is in many churches there are full-time vocational people uh, who dedicate themselves to the ministry of the church, and that is a legitimate calling uh, that needs to be recognized and compensated. Further on in the verse, it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So almost always, the elders who work in full-time ministry are the preachers, the teachers, the ones who are doing that uh, kind of work. But the way this sentence is phrased is also important in noting that there seem to be two kinds of elders, equal with each other, but different emphases. There's those who rule, and then there are those who preach and teach. And so there's often a distinction made between ruling elders who are working governance and teaching elders who are involved in preaching and teaching. All of them are elders, and all of them have an equal say in terms of decision-making at the church. And at Trinity, here again, to make application of what we're doing, there's four of us, all on an equal footing, who are providing leadership, uh, getting this off the ground. And I am doing the bulk of the teaching. But the other three are also heavily involved in the day-to-day -day running of things and helping to create this healthy uh, environment that we want to create. Moving on, if you read in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so there's a scriptural justification that's given here for why it is appropriate for a church to provide a living to the minister. Uh, and it goes to Deuteronomy uh, and gives the example of the ox harvesting the grain. And if that is an image that seems very old or disconnected from us, keep in mind in the days before combines, uh, you would lay the grain out and there would be an ox pulling a stone wheel over it to harvest it. That's how 
harvest was done. And if you are this ox who's working at threshing this grain, would you feel a little ripped off if you weren't even allowed to eat <laughs> from it? Right? Of course you would. So don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. If this ox is doing this work for you, uh, let him enjoy the fruit of his labor. Okay? He's not going to eat all of it, and if he does, well, then maybe it is time to muzzle him. But it's only fair that he enjoys the fruit of his labor. And that's the image that is given here in application to a church supporting her elders. Let him enjoy the fruit of his labor. If he's uh, quit his other career to, to feed your family, to feed your souls, to look over the church, that is a calling that should be compensated so his family doesn't pay the price uh, for him doing this. But there's something very interesting that actually has nothing to do directly with church governance that is happening in this verse, and that ties in very nicely with some of the stuff we've been covering in Sunday school. Notice here how Paul says, Scripture says... So he's appealing to scripture. So Paul is making his case about church leadership here. And then he's saying, as scripture says. So he's appealing to scripture. And then he quotes that, that quote about the ox treading out the grain comes from Deuteronomy 25.4. So it comes from the Old Testament. And by this time at the church, the Old Testament was clearly settled. Uh, by the time Jesus showed up, by the time of the New Testament, the Old Testament has long been settled. Everybody knows what it is. They're familiar with it. But then, what's the additional quote in there? So scripture did say, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. But then it also says, scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. Well, where's that from? Scripture said it, must be important. Where did scripture say the laborer deserved his wages? Well, it says that in Matthew 10.10 and in Luke 10.7. And that's very significant. Because that means... Well, we've seen how the process of creating a canon, how creating the Bible, how that kind of, that historical process, how that played out. Uh, And we've discussed that the church doesn't have the authority to create scripture, but only to recognize those books which are breathed out by God and which are genuinely in their character, scripture. Okay, so this is like a police officer looking at counterfeit money. He has no power to decide whether this bill will be counterfeit or genuine, he recognizes what it is in its actual essence. That's his job, and that's the church's job with Scripture, isn't to decide whether this is good enough to be in the Bible or not. It's to discern whether this is, uh, in its nature, Scripture. And we're living in the New Testament here, in the early days of the church, while this is being written. So again, we've discussed that transition from apostles to prophets, from the miraculous to the ordinary, from supernatural ministry to elders and deacons. And it's important that in this setting, in here, Paul looks at Timothy, and then he looks at what Matthew and Luke wrote, and he calls that scripture. Very significant. That means one apostle is recognizing the writings of other apostles as scripture. So, do Matthew and Luke belong in the Bible? Yes, they do. Because Paul just recognized that is scripture what those men wrote. So you see internal evidence here in the scriptures that the scripture is being added to at this period of time and that the New Testament is legitimate scripture. Matthew is on the same footing as Moses. Luke is on the same fitting, same footing as Moses. And so this is significant that you see this evidence inside the Bible that the Bible is uh, what it says it is. It is scripture. So the takeaway here is that Paul recognizes Matthew and Luke as having authored scripture. This is unfolding before the church's very eyes. 
what they are getting in, in book form is on par with Moses. And then later, in 2 Peter 3.16, we're going to find that Peter looks at Paul's writings and calls that scripture. So there's all kinds of internal connections happening showing that the church is uh, receiving scripture from the apostles and the other apostles recognize it as legitimate scripture. Highly, highly significant. And many of us might think it would be more fitting for the Bible to just, you know, I've, I've used this image and just wish it would just fall out of the sky and land on a satin pillow, uh, but that's far too clean. That's not how the Old Testament came. The Old Testament came bit by bit uh, and was slowly gathered and collected. It, it, we should expect it to be no different for the New Testament, and it was no different for the New Testament. Just ordinary, normal providence, uh, and this is coming together. And we also know that in Jesus' own ministry, he recognized the legitimacy of the Old Testament. When he's arguing with the Sadducees and with the, uh, the Pharisees, he's not arguing about, oh, well, yeah, but you shouldn't have included that book in the Bible, or, or you've missed this book. Uh, they're arguing about the meaning of Scripture, about the interpretation of Scripture, but there's no disagreement about what is Scripture. That is clearly established. The Old Testament is recognized as Scripture, uh, and here the same exact process is happening. Bottom line takeaway, you can trust your Bible, Old and New Testament. It is all the Word of God, all on equal parity. But back to what is being taught here and not just the, the interscriptural connections. It is fitting that the church support those who care for their souls and dedicate themselves to the service of the church. And each, each church's circumstances are going to be different, so this will look a little different in each uh, case, but the legitimacy of uh, vocational ministry has been established. And again, at Trinity, all of us are bivocational. If you've got questions about specifics here, gladly come talk to any of us. Um, but we are in our own circumstance. Other churches are in other circumstances, and that is all good as long as we're honoring these principles. Moving on, verses 19 through 21... It says here, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So now what we're in the midst of here is some kind of a conflict resolution process. And consistent with Old Testament law and with the words of Jesus that we just read in Matthew 18, there is an objective standard for bringing charges against someone. Okay? Hearsay isn't adequate. Gossip isn't adequate. Rumors aren't adequate. What does there need to be? There needs to be several lines of independent witnesses, two or three witnesses. And these witnesses need to be independent from each other. So, for example, if two boys come running in and, and they claim the same thing, that might be viewed as one witness because they're closely collaborating. Or a father-son team may be only seen as one witness because clearly they have the same interests, or a husband and wife team, for example. So this, but the, the, the concept here is two or three witnesses, meaning you're, there's, uh, there's consistency and there's agreement as to the facts of the case. And many of us, having grown up in the Western world, just simply take this for granted. Well, yeah, of course you need you know, several witnesses. Of course the mob doesn't have the freedom to just string somebody up and hang them uh, because someone is mad. Of course there's just weights and measures. Of course there's due process. Uh, but that didn't happen by accident. If you like the rule of law, thank the Christian worldview. And we talked about that this morning too. Thank the Christian worldview. In many cases in the world and in history, mob justice has prevailed. Somebody's angry at someone's head immediately. The fact that we have procedures and that we have 
uh, rule of law in the West is distinctly because the Christian worldview uh, got here first. Our courts today demand independent lines of witnesses, and they also work on the presumption of innocent, right? We're innocent until proven guilty. Well, why is that? Why not guilty until proven innocent? Well, because this honors the law of God, and it also recognizes God as the final and perfect judge. Mobs and rioters demand justice, and when do they want it? What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now! Right? There's not time to do this properly because someone's thirsty for blood right now. I need justice now. I'm angry now. Someone needs to die now. Hang somebody up. Cut their head off in the guillotine if it's the French Revolution. Okay? But they demand justice now. Why is that? Why is there an automatic bloodlust that takes over when the Christian worldview starts to wane? Why is that? Why do we get mob rule? It's not a mistake. If we know that the Lord of heaven and earth will judge a perfect judgment, he will render perfect judgment to everybody at one day, and he will do this perfectly, it actually makes sense to presume innocence rather than guilt, right? It suddenly makes sense that it's better to let a guilty man go free than it is to uh, string up an innocent man. Why? Because the guilty man who went free will not escape judgment in the final end. He will get judgment. And if you are a Christian resting in the justice and the perfect judgment of God, you know that. You don't need blood in the streets right now. You don't need a mob dictating justice. You can go through these proper channels because the God of heaven and earth will do right in the final end. So just weights and measures become what we want and not instant vigilante style of justice. Verse 20 is clear. That if a man is genuinely found guilty, after the proper procedures have been honored, if he's genuinely found guilty, he needs to be uh, rebuked publicly because his mistake was public. So just as the error or the, the moral failing is before everybody, the correction needs to be before everybody too so that justice is clearly served. Scandal is always bad, but it is especially destructive when it involves Christians who serve as the public face of the church as elders do. And so that's why specific attention is drawn to elders here is because elders have the ability to build and to scandalize the church in a way that other people uh, don't, it's not so public, it's not so instant. And so if an elder is publicly failing, his correction also needs to be public so that the world uh, sees a consistent Christian witness that we don't just cover up for each other, but that God is actually concerned about truth and about justice. And the passage here isn't specific or doesn't narrow down what kind of charges are to be brought against elders, but basically all charges would fall under one of two main categories, theological errors and moral errors. And so theological errors would have to be the charge would come up that, that false doctrine is being taught or heresy or something misleading being taught about the Bible, and then due process is required, sound, sober judgment, because maybe somebody misspoke, maybe somebody heard something in a certain way, so you don't just assume the worst and demand someone's head, you you work through the process, trying to make sure that there's mutual understanding, that we know what's being said, uh, if the disagreement is genuine or if it's based on a misunderstanding. And then, if the threshold of guilt isn't established, the elder carries on, but if it is established that he's guilty, because his ministry is public, the correction also needs to be public. And if the church can't handle public scandals publicly, uh, she loses her integrity to a watching world. Then there's also moral charges. And so this would have to do with a a church leader's private life. 
his moral conduct, how he conducts himself in the church or maybe outside of the church, but it's public in either sense. And due process is important here too, because many people would love to discredit Christianity by making false statements against Christian leaders or public Christians. But if it can be shown that he's guilty of what he's been accused of, the same principles apply. If he has sinned publicly, he needs to be corrected publicly. Okay? And that's not at all at odds with what Jesus said in Matthew 18. It's consistent with that. If the matter's private, keep it small, keep it private. If the matter's public and big, treat it accordingly. You use the, the level of force that's necessary in the situation. Then in verse 21, it says that we are to keep these rules without uh, prejudice or partiality. So what matters is the truth of the matter. And this has always been a tr- uh, an important matter to treat things truthfully, and it remains so in our day. And does anyone remember, if you read through the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, what is the, uh, the penalty for lying or to, for bringing false charges against someone? It's that the false witness bears the penalty for what they accuse the other guy of. Okay? So if murder is a capital crime and you falsely accuse someone of murder, you get capital punishment. That's a strong disincentive to make false charges against people. If you are found to be a liar, you pay the penalty that you wanted the other guy to pay unjustly. So there's a strong disincentive built into biblical law to lie or to be a false witness. It's a very strong deterrent. And Paul is also making his case very strong because what? He's invoking the name of God, of Jesus Christ, and of the elect angels. So he's calling in the big guns here to make his case. He's making it as seriously as he can that justice has to be served and it has to be actually just. And so notice how he's not demanding that the accused are to be found guilty or that the accused are to be found innocent. He actually doesn't care about the outcome as long as the 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 proper procedures in keeping with truth are honored. Okay, so we don't want outcome-based justice. We don't want a certain, you know, they just automatically assume automatically everyone who's charged needs to be guilty or everyone who's charged automatically needs to be innocent. The truth matters. The truth matters. And people are inclined differently. Some might be motivated to cover up for leaders, right? The good old boys club and we all slap each other on the back afterward. Um, there, there's that kind of boys club that protects people from serious charges. But others prefer the underdog always, and so uh, others may want heads to roll no matter what. They just, well, if anyone's in any kind of position of authority, they need to be brought down, uh, and so any kind of charges they want to stick. But these are both bad instincts, because neither of them are concerned about truth. They're just concerned about the outcome I want, okay? Uh, And truth is what matters here. So there's so many places in the Old Testament law that give us a picture of just weights and measures that we need to be reminded here again to follow procedures and not just look for a specific outcome. There's many texts in the Old Testament that tell us, and and this would fit with our instincts in our day, not to favor a rich man in court, right? The rich man can hire the humdinger lawyer and he can get off, uh, but that's not fair, right? We We shouldn't favor a rich man in court. What cuts against our culture is that there's an equal number of texts in the Old Testament that tell us not to favor a poor man in court, right? Just because he's the underdog doesn't mean he's innocent. The underdog may be lying. The underdog may be guilty, okay? Guilt and innocence aren't established based on how much money you have or what your position is. It's established by the facts of the matter. And that's the, the, the strong focus here is that the facts matter, not us getting the outcome that we're looking for. So if charges are coming against an elder, you can be rest assured that the atmosphere in the church is 
heavy, no matter what, whether he's guilty or innocent. If these accusations are being made, there's a heavy atmosphere in the church, and we're not in a happy situation. But that underscores even more having objective procedures in mind so that we don't get lost in, uh, in the clouds or in the pessimism or in the rumors that are inevitably going around. And many of us are probably thinking about a number of public sex scandals that have rocked the Christian church over the, the last number of years. And this is a terribly scandalous stain that is on the church. And this has affected the church of all stripes, is these sexual scandals. And because the strong warning in verse 20 to publicly rebuke elders and make them an example so that others stand in fear, often what the church has done is if a, if a standing elder is guilty of you know, sexual crimes, for example or sexual sin, uh, that he is disqualified for the rest of his life from serving as an elder again. Some think that's ungracious, some think that's wise, uh, but typically that has been the tack that has been taken. This doesn't mean that they can't be restored into fellowship in the church. This doesn't mean God can't forgive their sins. All of that, yes and amen. Uh, But uh, would it be wise to leave the serial adulterer in charge of the young mom's ministry? Probably not a wise idea, even if he's genuinely forgiven, right? So there's wisdom that is involved here. There's a story from World War II of a British cabinet minister who scandalized himself with selling secrets to a spy in exchange for sex, and he resigned. And in our time, what would someone like that do? They'd want to serve their two-minute penalty and then get back in the public light, right? And and we see that frequently. Okay, I'll serve my two-minute penalty and then I'm back in. Uh, This man had the integrity to say, I have greatly betrayed the British people. That man served as a janitor in the House of Lords for the rest of his life, paying his debt to the British people. He betrayed them. He betrayed his wife. He betrayed his country. He showed his penance, not that it has to be worked off in front of God, but he wanted to show he was seriously repentant by staying out of the limelight and serving uh, the British government that way. And how different is that from the guy that wants to just get back into the public limelight as soon as it's politically feasible? And I think the same thing happens in the church. I know of a number of ministers or Christian leaders who have actually respected. I was just having a conversation this morning with someone, a a very gifted speaker who I love to hear preach and answer questions on the floor. And he thought on his feet and he was glorious. And it's come to light after his death uh, that he left a long trail of sexual sin. And it's heartbreaking. This is someone I loved listening to. He was really good. He was genuinely gifted by God. So it's damaging to the church when someone falls that way. We need to be careful. This, this is serious stuff that we're playing with. And we need to follow just weights and measures. And if an elder is too eager to get back in the limelight once his sins have been forgiven, that probably isn't a sign of health either. Like the, the man in the British Parliament, there's a certain humility with being okay with being out of the limelight after you have fallen so spectacularly in the public eye. But we also need to push back in the other direction. Push back in the truth on the opposite side. We live in a culture that I think is more inclined to mob justice. And, and so what do you see? Some of the hashtags and these popular cultural movements, right? Like Me Too or Believe All Women. Is that a good idea? Believe All Women? Can women lie? Yeah. Are men vulnerable not only to sexual sin but to charges of sexual sin? Yes, extremely. Are Christian men uh, in leadership vulnerable to charges of sexual sin? Absolutely. Okay? And if a charge is made, even if you're innocent, how do you ever clear your name? Once the news media has run with so-and-so committed the sex crime or whatever, even if it's not true, uh, your name is, is mud forever. 
So we don't want to get involved with, you know, me too or believe all women just because we're, you know, want the pendulum to spin all the way the other way. If we believed all women, we'd have had to take Potiphar's wife at her word, wouldn't we? Right? Was Potiphar's wife, a, you know, a survivor? Or was she the, the criminal in that case? And she was clearly the criminal. Okay? So there's two directions to push here. Uh, the truth is what matters, not a certain outcome. And so again, the takeaway from 19 to 21 is that the truth is ultimate. Just weights and measures are always to be preferred over both demands from the mob or from the protection of the good old boys club inner circle. We want truth-based justice and not outcome-based justice. And this needs to happen in the church first of all. We need to take it very seriously and be sure when we hear charges. We need to work through it carefully. We need to take justice very seriously And in all of it, we want the truth to be honored because we want God to be honored in it. Then carrying on, verse 22 and 23, it says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor to take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So because of how serious church leadership is, Timothy instructed, or Paul instructs Timothy not to be too eager with laying on hands. And that's just another word for ordaining someone or, or commissioning them to the ministry. Okay, and we saw that in 1 Timothy 4.14, that that's the method of ordaining new men into the ministry. The purity of the church and the purity of her doctrine are too important to be hasty with putting people in these spots. We saw the personal qualifications for elders and deacons in chapter 2. Now we're seeing how to handle controversy, whether it's doctrinal controversy or moral controversy. And so we need to be very careful when we work through questions of church leadership. And maybe this also reminds us about the the caution that not many of us should desire to become teachers, right? James appeals to this too in James 3.1. He says, you'll be judged more strictly. So don't be hasty in this. Doesn't mean don't do it. Do it, but do it thoughtfully. And then verse 23. In your Bible, it might be in parentheses. Why? This makes no sense. We're talking about governance. We're talking about just weights and measures. And then all of a sudden, there's health advice. Right? Drink some wine for your stomach. And, and in, whose Bible is this in parentheses? It is in mine. Right? So depending on your translation, it might be in parentheses. Now, parentheses aren't part of Greek sentence structure or, uh, or punctuation. So this is a translation decision that this is an aside. And I think they probably got it right that it is an aside. But why do we all of a sudden have that here? It seems like it's just out of nowhere. Okay? Uh, many of us have probably heard the true account of how Drinking water was unsanitary in Bible times, and so wine was frequently used as a, as a sanitary way of drinking, getting your water content in, and that's true. Okay, uh, And its alcohol content meant it stayed clean. But why, again, still that doesn't answer, okay, but why are there health instructions in the middle of a thing about just weights and measures and purity in the church? Well, let's go back further in the book, and we read lots about Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism had this strong spiritual and physical divide. Physical stuff like food and marriage are evil. Spiritual stuff like being freed from your body and flying off to some ethereal heaven, that's good. And of course, that's at direct odds with the Christian teaching. But this did mean that Christians who were influenced by Gnosticism uh, had many teachings about avoiding food, avoiding marriage, and avoiding other physical things. They took a don't-touch, don't-taste approach Because that was a common pagan notion in the early church. And it's still a live issue for us today, of course. But Paul has already been pushing back against Gnosticism in a few places in this book. In uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, All food is clean if it's received with thanksgiving. 
In chapter 4, verse 8, he commends bodily training. Okay, so training your body in sports isn't bad. There's value in it. But Gnosticism uh, saw it, again, saw death as a release, whereas Christianity saw it as a corruption uh, and and something unnatural in the world. So there's the focus on resurrection instead of getting out of here. But there was this Gnostic tendency to make up man-made rules. And so it would have been easy to confuse the cultural standards with uh, biblical Christianity. So simply put, some people probably saw wine in the same light that they saw food or meat, that it was bad in itself. And so now it makes sense, if we think about the Gnosticism in the church, why Paul would encourage Timothy to take some wine to settle his stomach right after a strong admonition about staying pure. So the standard of purity is God's law. It's not what the the pagans are telling you. It's not what the Gnostics are telling you. It's God's law. God's law is the standard of what purity is. And so if you're so scrupulous that you say, well, I can't even take a medical treatment for my stomach because what the standards of purity are out in the culture, uh, Paul is saying, no, that's, they don't get to define purity. You are to be pure, but if that involves that you need some wine for your stomach, do it. Okay? There, there's nothing wrong. This is then a, a gift from God. So Paul is essentially telling Timothy that his conscience should be held captive to God's law and not informed by the Gnostic demands that were around him just to avoid the appearance of uh, violating the Gnostic conscience. So he shouldn't avoid wine simply because the Gnostics saw it as a test. If the wine would be good for his body and for healing him up, then he could take it while still remaining morally pure. And of course, these kinds of issues are a live issue for us today, whether it has to do with red meat or alcohol or you name it. There's many conscience decisions that Christians make. And drunkenness, of course, on this issue, is always sinful. And so as a result, many Christians see it as wisest to just abstain altogether. You know, I don't want to go down that road, and, and provided that doesn't become legalism, that is a wise decision. Other Christians see liberty in this area, understanding that drunkenness is a sin, but the consumption of wine in itself is not necessarily, and as long as they don't become libertarian with that kind of view, that's also perfectly acceptable. Both are lawful paths as long as we aren't in the business of binding one another's conscience over a matter that scripture doesn't prohibit, as per Romans 14. Okay, so there's room for conscience here. Uh, And so conscience matters fit with objective purity standards in the church. Uh, And that's why this, yes, it is an aside, but it's not an unrelated aside in this text. Then lastly, verse 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Okay, and so these verses likewise are put in the context of the public teaching and the public morality of church elders, although there's a broad application to all Christians, of course. We can't see into someone else's heart, and so our judgment is based just on outward performance. We can't see a person's heart. Right? And, uh, there's, you know, there's the joke about what the secular Bible is that you highlight all the Bible in black except for Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. Right? That's the only Bible verse that really matters, do not judge, and then you can highlight the rest of your Bible in black because that's the only verse that really matters. Um, but that's not saying we don't judge behavior. We, don't, you know, we can't say something's wrong. Of course, you can say drunkenness is wrong. And if your friend is doing that, you, you confront him. You send. Okay? If someone has uh, got a porn problem, you confront him because it's objectively wrong. You judge the behavior. You don't know the heart. You can't uh, kick someone out of the kingdom of God because they're sinning. So that's the kind of judgment Jesus prohibits. But the rest of us, we have to make judgments 
Otherwise, we couldn't make decisions. So judgment in itself isn't bad. What we are limited to is judging behavior. We can't look into the person's heart. But we are to judge behavior. Okay, and so if there's conspicuous out-in-the-open sins, they need to be dealt with immediately and publicly. Right? The same measure of force is used as what the occasion requires. Some, however, are very good at covering up their sins, and they will be able to fly below the radar for a little bit. But as Numbers 32, 23 promises us, your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. And this isn't in my notes, but young men, we live in an age of tremendous access to pornography. And all of it is a lie from the pit of hell. And unfortunately, we live in an age where you can access this directly. And no one will know. Okay? Except God knows. And I will promise you, once you are married... Uh, it will affect your marriage, whether your wife even finds out or not. It just has a way of, uh, of lying to you and being deceptive. Okay, so private sins are not private. They won't remain private. God sees it. You're harming yourself, and you are harming uh, the women in your life. And of course, for the ladies, there are private sins as well. Uh, but this is one that is always a live issue. Secret sins are a lie from hell, and we need to kill those things before they get out and fester as an open boil. But the point here is that you cannot outrun your sin forever. Personal integrity matters, because if we're just playing a game, eventually everyone will see it for the facade it is. But thankfully, the same thing holds true for good behavior. We have many warnings not to be showy with our godliness, but other instructions to shine your light before all men, and is that a contradiction? And of course, no, it's not. When we shine the light in a dark world, it just will become visible, even if we're not being showy about it. And sometimes, true righteousness also flies below the radar. I got a, a great story. I was when, back in my feed selling days. I was up in Riverton. I didn't know anyone up there. Uh, and I was just looking for blue farm silos because that's how I could identify dairy farms. And I went on to one farm, uh, and it wasn't a dairy anymore. They had a, a bakery, and they had some other stuff on the yard there. And, and this gentleman played the Mennonite game with me, and he found out who I was related to. Uh, and I found out a close relative of mine had uh, rescued this man from bankruptcy 15 years before. I didn't know it from that person who did that. And isn't it far more precious that I found it out from the beneficiary of this help rather than if this person had advertised to me how good and how wonderful and how godly they were. I heard it from the person who benefited from it. Okay? Is that shining your light in the darkness? Yes, it is. Is that going out on the street and boasting about your good behavior? No, it's not. Okay? So again, uh, these, but if you are working faithfully and quietly below the surface, it will tend to come up. You will hear about someone's legacy, maybe at their funeral, maybe before, maybe never. But these good works go on ahead of us, and they're still important. So even the good works, which aren't immediately seen, will not remain hidden forever. And even if they remain hidden from human eyes, God sees it, and he is eager to reward these things on the final day. All of this will come to light on the day of judgment, good or bad, private or public. So, in summary here, we've seen some more practical instructions about how the church is to be governed. We've seen that the church is to be led by a plurality of godly elders, some of which are more involved in governance and some of which are more involved in teaching. The church is to be willing to support these men as needed if they devote themselves to this task. But there's also a two-way accountability. The, the church is accountable to the elders, but the elders are also accountable to the church. Right? They're, they're not untouchable just because they're in leadership. They are very much accountable. And so a lot of this passage outlines biblical standards for justice so that the truth can be honored even when elders 
are accused of false or immoral behavior. We have a mechanism to deal with this stuff. And this is very practical for us as a new church plant. Right? We desire to build things right the first time. And so, uh, again, even if it doesn't seem exciting to talk about some of this stuff, it's in the text. We're committed to sequential expository preaching, which means we just spend a lot of time talking about widows because God thinks that's important. He also thinks managing affairs properly in the church are important. And so we preach on that. Um, and so this is good for us. This is a blessing for all of us. And so why don't we close in prayer? Lord, thank you for your instructions. Thank you that you have not left us blind in any area of life. Lord, but your word is uh, authoritative on everything to which it touches, and it touches on everything, and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us blind about how you want your church to be ordered, uh, to your commitment to truth and to uh, mutual accountability, to just weights and measures, to love in the church, to honesty in the church. Lord, thank you that you have not left us blind. Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray for those in leadership, those who are new here, uh, those who are yet to come here. Lord, we pray that you would be working uh, in hearts, in minds, uh, that we would be building a culture of love, building a culture of grace, of clear standards, uh, of wanting to honor your word in all areas. Lord, and I pray that as we take care of the governance issues, that the culture of godliness and of bringing you glory would be built up alongside that, uh, that we would glorify you in all parts of this church and in our private and in our public lives as well. We commit these things all into your hands and we thank you for your goodness to us. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. The wisdom of God is put on display whenever he reveals how he has designed things. The metaphors of scripture show us that the church is designed to be a bride, a mother, a household, and a body. All of these things are weakened without structure and are strengthened with proper structure. All require government of some form. God has given us instructions for how a church is to be accountable to elders and how those elders are to also be accountable to the church. Just like in a household, headship and submission are very real. But they operate more like a dance than like a military drill. In all our relationships, one of the ways we reflect the glory of God is by honoring the truth through godly thinking and godly living. We have seen instructions for how this is to look in the church, and we all have a role to play in making sure the church operates according to her design. And then I will leave you with the benediction from Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be... And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Go in peace.